Samuel chapter uh, 29 this evening, 1 Samuel chapter 29. The pulpit is rigged with explosives, exactly 750, it's going to blow up. Pastor did it to me, he said that uh, business meeting's at 8 o'clock, and so uh, you're about to, you've witnessed two miracles tonight, the Holy Spirit spoke audibly, and I'm going to end early. Two miracles. Well, the second is yet to be seen, so let's not hold our breath yet. But uh, I'm, I'm supposed to be exercising some self-control, so uh, we're going to try that. 1 Samuel chapter 29. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, you're going to be in 1 Samuel 30. 1 Samuel chapter 29, David is uh, he's on the run from Saul still, obviously not king. He's with a man named Achish in the city of Aphek. And, uh, and so he's over here. Um, he's been run away. Uh, David's been married twice, and he's got two wives. And he's living in a city called Ziglag. And, uh, and so he's over here in Ziglag. He's got his two wives. He's got quite the band of men, his merry men, David's merry men. Uh, they're all destitute, they're all discouraged, and they're all in debt, all right? And so he's got the, the, the lowlifes that have come to uh, hang around him. He's got about 600 soldiers that are hanging out with him. And, uh, and so here's David and Ziglag. Uh, David's with Achish, so he leaves Ziglag for a little bit goes over to the city Aphek, and he's about to join in with the Philistines. Can you believe this? He's about to fight with the Philistines. They're about to wage war uh, in that area of Aphek and, and go into battle. This is 1 Samuel chapter 29. So David has left home. He's left his wife, and all of his 600 soldiers have left their wives. They left their children. Virtually, they have left their city, Ziglag, undefended. And while they're gone, the Amalekites strike. The Amalekites come in, the Bible says, and they smite the southern part of Ziglag. And then they work their way through the city. And as they're working their way through the city, they pillage, they plunder, they burn it to the ground. And the Bible says they kidnap all of the, men, of the women and all of the boys and all of the girls and take them captive. The Bible specifically mentions that they don't kill a single one of them. They just take them all captive. David is over here. Remember, he's in Aphek. Well, the Philistines finally put two and two together about who David was. Wait, isn't this the servant of Saul? Isn't this the one they sing all those songs about how he killed his ten thousands? And hang on a second. Do we really want him going into battle with us? Because he could turn on us in the middle of the battle and cause us to, to lose this war. Do we really want this? And they're really just jealous and envious of David and who he is and how God is blessing him. And so they get all in a little tussle there about who's going to be there and who's not going to be allowed to be there. David get, gets kicked out. But he's three days' journey from his hometown, Ziglag. And Ziglag has been pillaged and Ziglag has been plundered. David doesn't know it yet, but he's going to begin this three-day journey and from what I can tell, it's 
Basically, when he gets kicked out of Aphek is when that all happened in Ziglag. And so the enemy gets to be a three-day head start on him while he's three days heading back to Ziglag. All right? And so let's pick up here in 1 Samuel chapter 30, in verse number 3. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. Verse number 8, And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue. For thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David, uh, so David went, he and the 600 men that were with him, and came to the brook Besor, uh, where those that were left behind stayed. Some of the men were so tired from all this journeying and crying that they didn't make it past this brook. Um, he left some there. But David pursued he and 400, so 200, abode behind which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Besor. And they found an Egyptian in the field. So here they are pursuing, and they come across an Egyptian. They find him in the middle of a field, and they bring him to David. They brought him to David and gave him bread, and he did eat, and they made him drink water, and they gave him a piece of uh, cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirits came again to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water three days and three nights. Here's this young man. He's an Egyptian. Is an Egyptian an Amalekite? The answer is no. An Egyptian is not an Amalekite. An Egyptian, obviously, representing the world. An Egyptian, a sworn enemy of Israel. Uh, just like the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a brutal people. The Amalekites were the first people to attack Israel when they crossed over the Red Sea after they escaped from Egypt. And so the Amalekites have had it out for Israel from day one of their freedom from Egypt. And so here David comes across this Egyptian. He's an Egyptian. We're going to find out that he's a, a slave, a servant to one of these Amalekite warriors. They're one of his masters. So obviously this young man has already been taken captive at some point. Where he lived or where he came from had already been decimated. Much like the city he just came from with his master, Ziglag, he had experienced that before. Just like they had taken David's wives and all the women and the boys and the girls captive, this young man had been through that personally in his life, where he had been ripped from his home country. And here he is, forced to go into a battle where once again he would relive the nightmare that was his own life. And so David comes across this young man, just about to die. We know that the human body, according to science, three days is max. No water. You're at, you're at the brink of death. And the Bible says that he had gone three days with no water, no food. He was probably very delirious. He was probably very confused. He, was, he, he had been through the ringer, you might say. Already taken from his home who knows how long ago. Forced to be a slave to a, a, a brutal Amalekite warrior. And now coming out of Ziglag, something happens to him. The Bible just says that he fell ill. We don't know what happened. Maybe he got wounded. Maybe he caught a virus. Maybe he's... I won't say it. Um, but either way, this boy had been through the ringer. 
confused, delirious, they give him water. That life-giving water quenches that dry, parched mouth. That sticky, foamy consistency just washed away with that cold fluid. He's given those raisins. He's given those nutrients. He takes him in and the sugar from that fruit begins to, to bring him back to life, revitalize him. And then here is David. David comes to this young man and he's, he, the first thing he's going to do, as soon as he sees that this boy is perking up, David is going to ask him two questions. He's going to ask him two questions. And I'm going to ask those questions to us tonight. You know, uh, my kids are finishing up homeschool for the year. They're finishing up their schooling. And um, at the end of the year, my wife does the... Um, California achievement testing, cat testing with them. And uh, they just something you can do online and check to see where you stand. Kaylin did a good job. I can't remember what it is, but she passed. She's uh, smarter than her dad. And, uh, and so she, uh, that's the only results we've gotten, but she did a good job and she got those above, those averages. Here's what, how you do and here's where you place and what grade you're testing in. Make sure that they're getting the education they need. You're asked some questions, you give a response, and they judge you based on that response. And I want to ask a couple questions tonight, and there is nobody here to judge you, and the test is not graded. It's a response, it's a question that I'll pose through the Word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to grade in your heart. And so, we're going to do a little Christian achievement test tonight. Or the equivalent. But let's have a word of prayer before we do that. Lord, we do thank you for tonight. We thank you for our time together. And Lord, may you uh, help us to answer honestly. Lord, may we be encouraged. May we be strengthened as a result of this. Um, Lord, we know that um, we need you. Without you, we can do nothing. So Lord, please work in our hearts and in our lives this evening. We ask in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse number 13. David asks question number one. And David said unto, whom, unto him, To whom belongest thou? First question. David doesn't say, Did you see an army pass by? David doesn't say, Did you see a, 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 big, uh, a, a big company of people? He doesn't ask him a bunch of other questions that would have come to my mind first. The first question that he asked this man, this young boy, to bring clarity in a situation where there was confusion, to get direction on how he should proceed, he asked him one question. And I think, much like this young man, we live in a world of turmoil and chaos, and, and you know, we're not going through the same things David did or this young man did, but I think oftentimes there are questions that we should just stop and ask ourselves that will help give clarity and help give direction and help us to respond correctly. And so the question that is posed tonight is to whom belongest thou? To whom belongest thou? Now I'm intentional about repeating this question over and over again because I'm afraid some may hear me say, who do you possess? I'm afraid some may hear me say, have you been saved? The question is, to whom belongest thou? But it's not to who, uh, or have you been saved? It's not even, who do you serve? The question posed by David to this young man was, to whom belongest thou? Who owns you? 
David knew that this young man was out of place. The Bible is clear to mention that here in Ziglag, in between Ziglag and wherever they were heading, is an Egyptian. Why an Egyptian? Because the Egyptian didn't belong there. David knew something was off with this. Who, do you, who owns you? Why are you out in the field? Why did we find you wandering through here? Whom belongest thou? To whom belongest thou? It's a question of who's in possession of your faculty. It's a question of who controls your thought life. Who tells you how to behave? Whose desires are you fulfilling? That's the question that is being posed when, 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 when it is asked, To whom belongest thou? Who owns you? Everything of who you are. Who is that person? David, he, he, he's a very wise man. We know that throughout Scripture. And he needed clarity in this situation where there was chaos, and where he was unsure, and he posed this question, To whom belongest thou? And tonight I pose the question to you, to us, to whom belongest thou? You know that you can be saved, be saved, but not really be owned by God? Oh, not that he hasn't redeemed you. None of us are confused about the topic. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19 tells us, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We understand very clearly that we are bought with a price, that we are not our own. But does God really own us? Do we belong to him? You see about this young man that he was owned by an Amalekite. But in verse number 15, when David says, can you show us where they went? You know what the young boy tells him? I'll show you if you promise not to turn me over to my master. Why? Because he didn't, in his heart, he didn't belong to that man. Yes, when he was asked who owns him or who he belongs to, he said an Amalekite. But he, that was not his master. He had made a, a mental decision that this is not my master. I may be forced to do this, and my arms may be twisted, and I may be locked in this, and there's nothing I can do about it, but I'm going to do it stomping the whole way in disgust of how I don't want to do this. And is that possible that our Christian lives become that? That because we don't turn ownership of ourselves over to God and let him take control of us, we don't let him own us, that we go through our Christian lives just kind of stomping our way through? Not truly surrendered, not truly given in and over to him? He's not the boss of our lives. There was a time in church history where there was a group of people who were owned by God. And this small group of men who were owned by God, the Bible says uh, that they were hated by the crowd who was around them. They were hated by the crowd who was around them, not because of their prestige, not because of their, their wealth or their position or their preeminence. And no, they were hated because of a message. 
And these, these, these small group of men turned the world upside down because they were solely and wholly given to God. God possessed every bit of them. We know that the apostles are these men. And how did these men turn the world upside down in such a short time? Because they let God own them. There is no doubt in my mind at all that if we were to stand the apostles in this room tonight and we were to say, to whom belongest thou? None of us would need to know the answer to that. It would never have to be verbalized because we know. We know what happened to them. But we have the word of God. We have the repetitive statement of Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who is Paul? An apostle, a servant, a follower, dedicated, given, completely over. Whatever he wants, that's what I want. We have the repetitive verses all throughout the Bible where he says, I'm given to God. I'm given to God. I'm given to God. Even in Rome, when Paul is in prison, knowing that he's nearing the end of his death in Ephesians chapter 6, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints, he says, pray, 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 and pray for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador. I'm an ambassador. This is not about my life. Don't pray for my release. Don't pray for my comfort. Don't pray for me to get out of this situation in Rome. We all know it's sticky. Just pray for me that I can deliver the message that I've been given because I'm simply an ambassador. It's not my life. It's his. He can have it. All of it. Every bit of it. Paul, to whom belongest thou? I belong to God. Every bit and part of me belongs to God. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. What powerful statements by a man who said, I belong to God. No, he doesn't just own me. He's not just bought me, and I'm not content with receiving his gift of salvation. He's got me. He's got every bit of me. We mentioned the apostles and, and how they, uh, if, we're, if they were standing in this room this evening, we wouldn't have to question to whom they belonged. Why? Well, because we know how they died. Peter was crucified. Andrew was crucified. Paul was beheaded. Thomas was killed by Roman soldiers. Philip was tortured and put to death. Matthew was martyred. Bartholomew was martyred, James was stoned, Simon was martyred, Matthias was burned to death, John was boiled in oil and exiled to Patmos. Hey, apostles, are you, who do you belong to? We belong to God. Not just because we're saved, but because he has ownership of my life. To whom belongest thou? 
What part of your life do you own? Is it the career part? Is it the comfort part? What part of your life have you taken back out of his hands? Is it the separation part? Is it the service part? I I don't know what it is, but do you really belong to God? Can you honestly say, yep, he moves me wherever he wants to move me. I'm just the puppet. Or do we wake up on a daily basis saying, this is what I'm going to do, and this is how I'm going to live, and this is what my future is going to look like, and this is how I'm going to go about it, and this is how I'm going to, and this is how I, and I, and I, and I. Hey, I know we need to see a change in our world, and I know that that change can come from a very small group of people because it's happened before. But what it's going to take is a group of people who wholeheartedly and honestly can answer to God when the question is posed, to whom belongest thou? I belong to you. You can have every bit of me, every morsel, every fiber, every breath of my life belongs to you. But that's not often the case. It is not often the case. How do you know that? Because we're not turning the world upside down. We need to ask ourselves these questions. We need to pose them to ourselves and we need to answer honestly. You know what Paul said? I have to die daily because my flesh wants to come back to life every day and take possession. Every single day that I wake up, my life wants to be its own thing. And it wants to become about me and my comfort. Yea, I count all things but dung. An honest response from a man who was used by God. It's an amazing thing. There's a follow-up question that's very much like the first question. To whom belongest thou, and whence art thou? Not necessarily a question of where did you come from, but whence art thou? What are you doing right here? Where did they find him? In the field. Did he belong in the field? No, he didn't. Why are you out here? Who do you belong to and what are you doing out here? The first question, who do you belong to, church? What are you doing out here? What are you doing? See, the the thing about this is that the what are you doing isn't the first question. Whom you belong to is. It's the first question because we need to belong to somebody to have purpose first. If you don't belong to God and haven't given given your heart to God, then you have no purpose in your life except self. But then you do have a purpose. Church, we often say the Christian life is the best life. The Christian life's the best life. The Christian life's the best life. Why does the Christian life look so miserable? If it's the best... Why does it look so miserable? Tell me. Why does it look so bad? That's the wrong answer. Why does it... You look around and so, so many Christians are miserable. What are you doing in this life? What is this life about? 
What is the purpose? What is your purpose here? Who do you belong to? And what is your purpose? Why are you here? We need to stop and ask ourselves that question. Often. What are you doing here? Because if we're not careful, it becomes about everything else. I'm rearing children. I'm being a good husband. I'm earning a living. I'm setting aside for retirement. Wait a second. Where is your and my conversation? Where is our testimony? Where is our life? Where is our example? Well, the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, for our conversation is in heaven. What we live for and our testimony, it's being sealed up there. What do you live for right now? Well, it's all being kept record of and it's, it's up there. That's, where, that's what we're supposed to be living for. It's in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a matter of prove to me that you've really given yourself to God. That's not what this question is about. It's a matter of have you wholly given yourself to God and you won't be able to help but living for him if you have. You don't have to prove anything. You just have to do it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, that you put off concerning the former conversations the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Listen to me. The thing about this is that you can't just get saved and sit out in the field. You can't truly belong to God and just be sitting stagnant. Whence art thou? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Why? Because it really truly answers the first question as well. This is like one of those trick things when they ask you those word problems and they ask another word problem, it's supposed to be the same answer. Who belongest, to whom belongest thou? I belong to God. Whence art thou? I belong to God. My life is just about him. Every single part of it. You know, coming into this year, 2020, almost every advertisement, every promotion I saw from every church that had anything online had something to do with vision and getting perspective, getting into God's word, getting vision for the future. And you know what? God just mixed that up really quick. And nobody saw what was coming and nobody knows what's going to be tomorrow and nobody knows what's going to be from a week from now. Are we going to get hit by a meteorite? Are there going to be riots in your street out in the suburbs? Hey, <laughs> you don't know. I don't know. Are the murder hornets coming back? Is COVID-19 just on a break during the protests and then it's going to come back? We don't know. We don't know. So you know what we do need to know? Who we belong to and what we're doing here. Because the answer to the problems in the world today is going to be found when a bunch of believers say, hey, you know what? I'm done with living for me. I'm done with trying to solve my problems. I'm done with trying to solve the world's problems. You know what I'm going to be about? I'm going to be about God. And that means being about the gospel. Because that's why he's left us here. It's not about your pocketbook. It's not about your career. It's not about rearing your children. It's not about your home, your hobbies. It's about who owns you. So who is pulling the strings in your heart? What's your 10-year plan? 
What's your 20-year plan? We always want to know what these plans are. How much money do I need for retirement in order to live comfortably? Well, what do you need to do for God in order to get to heaven comfortably? And have something to cast at his feet. Because he owns you. Let him own you. Whence art, who, who, to whom belongest thou? And whence art thou? Too many Christians own themselves. And God has no part of it. Father, we do thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to surrender ourselves to you. That we would die daily. That we would be turned over and committed. Lord, how easy, so easy to be caught up in the affairs of this life. Lord, help us to lay aside the weights and the sin which thus so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. There is a world that is confused and in chaos. They're pointing to all the solutions when in fact the, the, the solutions that they're pointing to will not cause any or not bring about any resolve. The only thing that will bring about peace in this world is knowledge of your son. Lord, may we be faithful ambassadors for you. May you be dictating in our lives why we live and how we live. Lord, may we show you our love for you by what we're doing today. May the church turn possession of our hearts over to you. As the piano begins to play, if you would stand with me this evening, if the Lord spoke to your heart.